This is the last Sunday before Christmas, as I mentioned, and so as it draws near, I would like to focus our attention for just a little bit on a part of the Christmas story, just one small part. And if you would, turn in your Bible, if you have one, over to Matthew's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one, incidentally. Uh, and we have a bunch that we keep in stock for that purpose. So if you don't have a Bible, ask uh, ask me afterwards, and I'll make sure that you get one uh, to take home with you. Um, but uh, if not, uh, look on with uh, with your neighbor here in Matthew's Gospel. I'll be uh, right up front that the passage we're looking at this morning is probably not among your most favorite passages of Scripture. But I hope in the time that we spend in God's Word this morning to change that for you and give you some great affection for this passage. It is one of the dreaded genealogies in the Scripture. But I want you to love and appreciate this one, not because of what it is, but because of what it teaches us about Jesus and about us and about the meaning of Christmas. So if you've got your Bible handy, uh, I invite you to stand with me as I read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 17. <clears throat> this is what the Word of God says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nakshon, and Nakshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom, was, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, uh, we look at a list of names like this, many of us, and we confess that we are tempted just to skip over sections of Scripture like this because we don't know why they're there, we don't know what their significance is, and we don't know what it's trying to tell us. 
And Father, I pray that uh, today, as we open your word, that you would speak clearly to us uh, from this passage of scripture that many of us have never really looked at in detail, even though we see it in our Bible every every year. Father, as we look, help us to see what you're what you're teaching us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, verse 1 is vitally important, not just because it is the first verse in this section, but because it tells us three very important things about Jesus. In fact, the first one that it tells us is the title that it gives him immediately after his name. A lot of people don't know this, but the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It is a Greek word, uh, Christos, which translates a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which uh, it translates the English word uh, Messiah. Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. In other words, from the very first verse, Matthew is trying to tell us that this is not the, the genealogy of an ordinary man. This is not the genealogy of someone who is just like every other person in the list. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And it tells us two other important things, that Jesus is also... And this is important, the son of David. David is going to come up several times in this genealogy because, in fact, the whole thing is structured around highlighting David's inclusion in uh, Jesus' lineage. And that's important because uh, God told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he and his family would have kings forever and that from the line of kings would come the Messiah. And so it's vitally important that Jesus be able to trace his lineage through David the king. And in fact, something else that's interesting uh, that you may not recognize because you, you um, don't understand what Matthew is doing. Matthew is a Jew. He's writing to Jewish people. And one of the things that... Jews did was practice something called gematria, which is the assignment of numbers to letters. And if you take the Hebrew letters for the name David, the consonants that form that name, and you um, give them the number that they appear in the order that they appear in the Hebrew alphabet, and then you add them up, they equal the number 14. 14. Now that's going to come up in verse 17, but it's also going to come up in the fact that, that David is, the, the genealogy is structured and crafted in a way to highlight that number 14. David is the 14th person listed in that genealogy. 14th man listed. Uh, and there are 14 gener and he is also the hinge point between the first section and the second section. And then at the end, it says there were 14 generations. Why? Is that number so significant? Well, you're not an you're not an ancient Jew, and so you don't you don't have a sense of these numbers. But they did, and what and the and 
the point is this, that Matthew is making a theological statement. He's not just recounting a list of names. He's making a theological statement that Jesus is the son of David. And you Jews who were the original audience for this, for this book, don't miss Jesus is the son of David. He is the one that was promised. He is the one who was to come. A Messiah must descend from David the king. And more than that, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Because in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22 of Genesis, God reiterates his covenant with Abraham that through him would come the Messiah, the one who would be the blessing to all nations. In your seed, singular word, by the way, interestingly enough, all of the nations of the earth would receive God's blessing. It's a promise of Messiah, going back to an earlier promise of Messiah in the Garden of Eden, where as soon as there is the first sin, there is the first promise that Messiah will come. And Eve knows that through her that is going to come the Messiah, but she doesn't know who the kid is going to be. And then you find out in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, it's going to be a son of Abraham. It's going to come through the Jews. As Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. So the Messiah has to be a Jew, has to be a son of David, and has to be a son of Abraham. And more than that, what the rest of this genealogy reveals to us is that Jesus has come, and he has come for you regardless of your past. Regardless of your past. You know, a lot of times people who are unfamiliar with the Bible think that the Bible is the inspired record of good people doing good things. And that everybody in it is kind of a plaster saint um, who is just really nice. And that's why God liked them so much. And included them in the Bible, right? And I want I'm here to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible tells the story of wicked people who were occasionally at their best godly and whom God in His grace saved and made His people. In fact, this genealogy, if you look at it, gives us the names of 41 men, four named women, and one unnamed woman whose identity we know, but which is not given in the text specifically. And there's a reason for that. I'll get into that in a second. But another thing you'll notice um, is, again, this number 14. That it's 14 generations to this, 14 generations to this, 14 generations to this. David is the 14th name. And it's because, again, it has to be the son of David. In the, and Matthew is highlighting that that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Uh, some of these names that you'll notice are names that if you are familiar with your Old Testament are names you know. And some of the people uh, are people you don't know anything about whatsoever and no one does because of when they appear in history. Uh, I think there's an important point being made in that. I'll get into that in a little bit. But in all of these names, in all of this listing, there is something that Jesus is teaching which is vital for our souls 
on this December 2020 morning. So get, get into it with me. Look at the text. You begin with Abraham. Abraham is the founder of the Jewish nation. Amen? He is the man of faith. He is the recipient of God's covenant. He is the one who, when God came to him and told him, leave your people, leave your father's house, leave the, the nation where you are, and go to the land I will show you, gathered up his family and left and went to the place where God would show him. And he is also the man of faith who would go so far in his faith as to willingly take his son, his only uh, begotten son, whom he loved, the one that was the child of promise, not the child of, of his um, misbegotten union with a slave girl but the child of promise, the one whom God said, through Sarah will your descendants be named, and through Sarah will be the recipient of the promise and the covenant. Through her, take that boy and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And Abraham saddled his donkey the next morning, took the wood and the fire and the boy and went. Now as it turned out, he did not wind up sacrificing Isaac, but he was just about to when God said he provided a lamb to be the substitute. Amen. He wanted to test Abraham's faith. And Abraham, that's Abraham at his best. At his worst, what did he do? Well, he abandoned the promised land, for one. God sent him to there. And then when it got difficult living there, he said, uh, the heck with this, and went off to Egypt. And while he was there, he lied about being married to Sarah and allowed her to be taken into the harem of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Not great, right? And then in addition to that, that, that cowardly move, uh, he also decided that the, the right thing to do for him while he was there would be to acquire this slave girl named Hagar. And then after they got back in the promised land to sleep with Hagar as his concubine and through her to have a son who was named Ishmael, whose descendants went to war with the descendants of Isaac for generations afterward down to this very day. That's Abraham. His son Isaac feared the Lord and received God's covenant but also emulated, imitated his father's cowardly habit of lying about whether he was married to his wife. And he played favorites with his sons, and the result was that his boys were estranged from one another. One of the sons was estranged from him for the rest of his life. And the boys founded nations who were at war with one another for generations afterward. The son who was the child of promise was Jacob. Jacob winds up lying to and deceiving his father, his brother, his uncle, and everybody in his life multiple times over the course of his life, runs off uh, to live with his uncle because he's afraid of his brother. He's afraid his brother will kill him. And by the way, his brother would have been justified having done so. But this is the guy who's the recipient of God's promise. Um, he never learns for most of his life to actually trust God. He winds up with four wives. 
in contrast to what God had clearly told him was the plan to have one wife per, per husband. That was it. There's not, there's not a provision for four. And uh, his four wives were the, uh, were the distress and pain of his heart uh, all of the days of his life. And his boys that he had through these women, uh, he played favorites with the boys. And with the one boy, the one he loved, and the, who was the firstborn son of the woman he actually liked of the four of them, um, he played favorites with that boy such that uh, the other brothers decided the best thing for them to do would be to kill him. And then at the last minute, instead of killing him, they decide to sell him into slavery instead. And then lie to their father, continuing this wonderful family tradition they've got going. Lie to their father about having done so, say that he has been killed. And Jacob only learns to trust God because God does two things to him. He breaks his hip, and then he breaks his heart. He broke his hip when he is coming home from Uncle Laban, whom he has lied and cheated out of everything he owns. And just before he's back to face the music with his brother Esau, whom he lied and cheated out of everything he owns, he wrestles with God all through the night. And God breaks his hip in the morning just before what he thinks is going to be a life and death battle versus his brother. And God protects him and preserves him and it causes Esau not to hate him and kill him, but to embrace him. So that Jacob would learn to trust God. And then later when his favorite son is feared dead for generations, God breaks his heart through what he thinks is the death of his son. And then when he sees him again, the text says that, Abra that Jacob worshipped God leaning on the top of his staff. Why does he need the top of the staff to lean on? Because his hip is still broke. It wasn't like 2020 where you could go get a new one. He limped the rest of his life because God had to break him to show him that he was trustworthy and that God would take care of him and he didn't need Jacob to scheme his way into his favor. Jacob's son Judah <clears throat> was faithless to God. In fact, it was his idea that they sell Joseph into slavery. And he raised wicked sons. In fact, his first two sons were so wicked that God actually took them, took their lives for being such wicked men. And they were married in succession to the same woman, a woman named Tamar. She's the first lady that shows up in the genealogy. And Tamar was hoping that one day Judah would give her son number three as a husband. But he decides, I can't have one more of my sons married to that woman, and I'm not going to let her have any more children by my boys. And so uh, when youngest son is old enough for marriage and he is not given to her, she decides, well, 
I know what I'll do. I'll seduce the old man. And so she dresses as a prostitute and goes and meets Judah, through whom she conceives and bears two sons, Perez and Zerah. We know nothing about the following generations, Hezron, Ram, Amenadab, or Nakshon, and that is because those, those descendants of Perez were all born, guess where, in Egypt in slavery. And slaves don't leave much of a record behind in a 430-year captivity. And then after they're back in the land, come out through Exodus, uh, you have a descendant who's named uh, Salmon or Solomon. Uh, he marries Rahab, who is known elsewhere in Scripture as Rahab the harlot. She was the former prostitute who hid the spies that Joshua sent into Jericho before they took the city by God's power. By the time that they meet her, she is not a prostitute anymore. Uh, she has stacks of flax drying on the roof of her house because she has become she has given up her former profession and has now become a linen weaver. It's what you make linen out of is flax, and that's why she's drying it on the roof of her house and has it there to hide these guys in. But nevertheless, she becomes known as Rahab the harlot for generations, even afterward, even after her conversion. About Salmon's descendant Boaz, we know a little bit more because of the book of Ruth. If you've read the book of Ruth, you've read this story of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who marries Ruth, the Moabite woman uh, who, the Moabites were people who worshipped the god Chemosh, who was worshipped through child sacrifice. An Israelite man married uh, two Moabites, you know, uh, his two sons each married Moabite women, and they went off during a drought over to Moab to live. Presumably, they became idolaters over there. But one of these idolatrous women comes to faith in Israel's God through the testimony of her mother-in-law, goes back with her to Israel, where she meets and marries Boaz. Boaz uh, has, uh, through Ruth, a son named Obed, who is counted among the Israelites, even though his mother is a Moabite. And then, uh, Obed, and then Obed has a son named Jesse, out of whom come seven sons, the youngest of whom is anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the king to replace King Saul. His name was David. David was a great warrior. He was the best of Israel's kings. He wrote many portions of Scripture. He, uh, those portions of Scripture are preserved for us today in Psalms, and they are wonderful. But he was also a man who, if you'll remember, did not control his own appetites, his own desires. He had multiple wives, contrary to God's very clear command to the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17, which says he is not to multiply wives to himself and yet did anyway as king. And depending on how you read the story, he was either seduced by the wife of Uriah and then committed adultery with her or he raped 
earth. And again, depending on how you read the story, one of the two sins uh, is David's. Either giving in to seduction or actively pursuing and then raping a woman who was known to him or should have been. Because who was Uriah? Uriah was not just some random fellow. Uriah was one of the 30 mighty men of David. These were among his inner circle, his personal bodyguard, the men who had fought every battle with him. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of his prime minister. Why isn't she named? Because she's called the wife of Uriah to highlight the fact that David sinned against her and against one of his best, closest friends. I'll get to the why that's included in just a minute. Hang in there. Solomon overall was a good king. David's son, who was born through the wife of Uriah, through Bathsheba. And his wisdom is written in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. He uh, expanded the nation's borders to the full extent that, that God had promised, from the Euphrates River all the way to the Wadi of Egypt, all the way to the Jordan, and all the way to the Mediterranean. On all four sides, they possessed the land that God had promised. <clears throat> he built the temple. He led even foreigners from distant lands to come to worship Israel's God. He was blessed beyond any person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. And yet, he took his father David's sin of having multiple wives and multiplied it by a factor of 10. He had 700 or, or 300, or 700 wives and 300 concubines. The scripture says 700 wives and 300 concubines. And they led his heart astray such that something that the prophets had struggled mightily to eliminate from Israel, idolatry and the worship of pagan gods, Solomon actually reintroduced back into the nation and built temples for it. One of the temples was for his wife, the daughter of Pharaoh, which was built on the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane now stands, right across the valley from Jerusalem. His son Rehoboam was a fool who fostered a revolt and then a civil war that led to a divided kingdom with ten of the tribes forming a new nation that they called Israel with its capital at Samaria and its worship centers of golden calf idols at Dan and Bethel. And it became uh, an enemy to the kingdom of Judah. His son Abijah only reigned three years, but the scripture says of him that he walked in all of the sins of his father before him and his heart was not devoted to the Lord. Asaph is another name for King Asa, who was a good king, but who also in his old age was afflicted by a disease in his feet, probably gout. And rather than seek the Lord over it, he would only seek the advice of another physician. And people would say to King Asa, you know, you wrought a 
You ought to go to the Lord. You ought to pray. You ought to seek the Lord's face for your illness. And he says, I will not bring you another doctor. His son Jehoshaphat was overall a good king also. And he followed the Lord with his whole heart. But he left standing all of the centers for pagan worship throughout the land. He himself said, you know, well, I tell you what, even though I am the king, I will myself worship the Lord. But if everybody else wants to do something else, well, just do your thing. After that, he has a son named Joram. And Joram marries a daughter of wicked King Ahab. And he, out of in the process of his relationship with her, follows all of her pagan ways. Whatever they do in Samaria, that we're going to start doing that here. That's a good idea. After that, Matthew leaves out three generations of bad kings. He just skips over them entirely. And then he takes us to Uzziah, who was a pretty good king as kings go, and mostly faithful to the Lord. But after he had been king for a while, decided he would also like to be priest and went into the temple to offer the sacrifices that only the priests were permitted to offer, was stricken with leprosy as a result, and did not die, but he lived his, the rest of his life being stripped of his kingship and having his son rule in his place and never being allowed to even enter the temple again because anyone with leprosy was not permitted to come to worship. His son Jotham was a good king who was devoted to the Lord, but like his grandfather or great-grandfather, did not take down the pagan worship centers. His son Ahaz rejected the Lord entirely and built a pagan altar in the temple after the model of the one that he had seen in Damascus. And he used the one that was built there for sacrifice to practice divination. To practice witchcraft, essentially. He also decided that, you know, it would be a good idea to have a strong nation to be allied with. I'll make myself the servant of the Assyrians. His son, Hezekiah, was a good king. One of the best. He threw off the Assyrian yoke. He walked with God. He cleansed the land of idolatry from one end to the other. He even sent emissaries throughout all of the northern kingdom, which had by, by then fallen to the Assyrians, and said, let's gather up anybody left who would like to repent and come and worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. Come and worship at Jerusalem. And most people mocked him. But a few actually did repent and come and worship the Lord with King Hezekiah. 
He trusted God. He saw Assyri the Assyrian army, 185,000 Assyrian uh, troops that surrounded the city of Jerusalem, miraculously defeated in one night. But when he was an old man, he got sick and he prayed to the Lord that he might have uh, his life extended and his, his illness healed. And as he prayed, God granted him 15 extra years of life, which was a good thing. But in his pride in having those 15 extra years, he, he made a couple of mistakes. One was that he welcomed emissaries from Babylon into the city and he showed off. He wanted to show how wonderfully blessed he was. And look at all of my glory. And he showed them every article, every possession, all the wealth of his house. And the Babylonians went back and said to their rulers, you know, they got some nice stuff down there in Judah. We should go and take it. Now, Hezekiah didn't live long enough to see that happen, but his descendants did. And every single thing that Hezekiah showed them was taken. In addition to that, during that 15 years, he had a son, a son named Manasseh. And Manasseh was the most wicked king that ever ruled over Judah. He went from allowing... Uh, pagan worship to actively encouraging it and leading the whole nation into it. And his son, Amos, or your Bible may read Amon, same guy, uh, walked in his ways. And both of them were so wicked that they ensured that the nation would fall under God's judgment. God said, after these two guys rule, that's it. Exile was coming it's too late to repent. After Amos came Josiah, who was the last and among the very best of the kings of Judah. He led the nation in repentance. He saw God's blessing as long as he lived, and the nation was protected from going into exile as long as Josiah was alive. Because he led a revival of worship of the true God, that had never been seen even in the days of David the king, Josiah led the nation in worship. But he decided that he would come in to a battle that was not his business against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt at a place called Carchemish. And while he was at that battle, he was struck dead. In the battle. And his son Jeconiah is the last king in any sense of the nation of Judah. And he's a puppet king at best. He's probably the last name a lot of us know among this list. Except for the last one that we know, which is Zerubbabel. We don't know anything about the guy in between. Sheltiel, other than that, he is the father of Zerubbabel. He gets mentioned in that capacity in the book of Haggai. Zerubbabel is the Babylonian Empire appointed governor of Judah. 
and under him the people of Judah rebuild the temple. But eventually we come down, and we don't know anything about these other guys, do we? Not one. After Zerubbabel, we're just lost in the mist of time, apart from these names. But eventually we come down to Joseph, the, Mar the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. We know from uh, the Gospels that Joseph was, in fact, a godly man, and we're going to see more of his story on Thursday night. I hope you all come uh, and celebrate Christmas Eve with us. But if you don't, understand this, that Joseph was a carpenter. He was the furthest thing imaginable from a king. In fact, it's interesting that who is ruling the nation of Judah at that time is not just the Romans, but under them an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, Jacob's, uh, I mean, uh, Isaac's other son. A descendant of Esau is ruling over the nation. When Jesus is born, his, his ancestors have not been among the great and the powerful in 12 generations. 12 generations. If you wind your own history back 12 generations, you'll get to somewhere in the 1600s. It's been a bit since Joseph's family, Jesus' family, were among the great and the powerful. We're among the we're among the rulers and the leaders. Jesus is born in barn, the son of a carpenter. And I think that is part of the point of this text. I've given you snapshots, really, of the history represented in this genealogy. There are things that are left out. There's a ton of people in this list who are, from our perspective, absolute nobodies. Who the only way we know their names is if, is if Matthew here or Luke in his genealogy lists them. There is a strong helping of good and godly men. There are a couple of good and godly women in here. But even the best of the women and the men even at their very best, they are touched by frailty and weakness and sometimes even egregious, heinous acts of rebellion and sin against God. Amen? They have deep sinfulness to a man and woman in this list, except for one, the last one. There's more than a handful of straight-up wicked people in this list. People who will not be in heaven because they rejected God entirely throughout their entire life. And then, after all of this long and checkered history, we come down to Jesus. And Jesus is not just born of Mary, legally counted as Joseph's son due to their marriage, but actually born the Son of God, the Messiah. Why do, why, what do you think all this is? Why is all this stuff in here? 
Because I think this list is meant to teach us something super important. And that is, is that no matter what your background is, no matter what your past history is, Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come for the parts of your history that you leave out when you tell it. Anybody else have some of those parts in your life? Where as you're recounting the story or maybe sitting around a campfire somewhere telling stories of your past or reminiscing with your buddies that you haven't seen in a while, these are the parts of the story you leave out. Well, Jesus has at least three people we know for sure are left out of his history here in this chapter. Jesus has come for you if you have shining moments of goodness and greatness and godly heritage. Jesus has come for you if you have sins piled up around your ears and falling down around your head. Jesus has come for you if you are a king or a carpenter or a prostitute or a pagan or a polygamist or a rapist or a murderer or just a generalized wicked person. Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come for you if you're pagan or God-fearing. Jesus has come for you if you're famous or if you're totally obscure. If you're a complete nobody or among the great and powerful, Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come for you whether you're a slave or the descendant of slaves or if you're a foreign immigrant. Jesus has come for you in every type and kind of person that there is. How do we know? Because he shows us in his own family that he, these are exactly the kind of people for whom Jesus has come. Immigrants and pagans and slaves and prostitutes and murderers and kings and carpenters and adulterers and murderers and everybody. Amen. And people who you would like to have their existence even swept under the rug. Even those people are the people for whom Jesus came. Jesus has come into the world to save sinners of every type and race and kind and color, every economic status, every social class, every level of godliness. Jesus has come for every single one of us. And on top of that, as verse 17 reminds us, you thought I wasn't going to get there. You thought I forgot, but I didn't. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Again, underline in your Bible who Jesus is. You see these 14, 14, 14. You ought to read David, 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 son of David, son of David. Fulfillment of God's promises. And on top of that, he is the Christ, the Christ, the only one, the Messiah, the one whom God had promised would come through Abraham, through David, has come. 
Jesus has come, men and women, boys and girls, for you. He has come for you. And He has come regardless of your past, just as God promised that He would. He has come. He has come. And if you are sitting here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior, you need to understand this. That Jesus has come for you. This is why He came. He came to save you from sin and death and hell. No matter what your past is, no matter what kind of baggage you carry, no matter what your heritage is, no matter where you come from. Jesus has come for you. Nothing that you could claim credit for and say, look at me matters when you stand before Jesus. Nothing that you feel deeply ashamed of matters when you stand before Jesus. Jesus has come for you. He came to be born of the Virgin Mary, to suffer under Pontius Pilate, to be crucified and dead and buried and raised from the dead to new life and to ascend into heaven from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead and to dwell with those who are his. Jesus has come for you. And if you don't know him yet, can I give you the best Christmas present ever? The one that's totally free. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and know God's love for the first time in your life. And know that all of your baggage, all the garbage that you maybe carry around and feel deeply ashamed of is nailed to the cross and you bear it no more and you do not have to carry that garbage one more second because it is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ who came for you. And in addition to that, if you're a Christian already, remember this here in the closing days of 2020. Jesus came for you regardless of your past. Regardless of what this year has been. I think you could safely say it's been a bummer for everybody. There's been a lot of losses that we have taken, amen? The number of things that I have planned for, the number of people I have longed to get together with is longer than my arm. And all of these things have been canceled. And I have grown so tired of having the fun stuff in life canceled, I can't even see straight, right? But none of that matters. Ultimately, because Jesus has come for me. Jesus has come for you. So many things have been lost and taken away, but this is one thing that can never be lost. That Jesus has come for you and given you salvation just as God promised. Jesus has come for you. And that should fill you with hope and joy. And every day, no matter what year, even in 2020, it should fill you with hope and joy that Jesus has come for you and that every time that you wake up is a reminder of the fact Jesus came for me. And one day, He is coming again just as 
He's promised. Just as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, we will celebrate the second coming. Because the God who worked through history to bring Jesus for us is also working in our history right now to bring Jesus back for us. Jesus came for you, regardless of your past, just as God promised, and Jesus is coming for you. Regardless of your past, just as God promised. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus has come for us. That regardless of what we've done, no matter what baggage we carry, no matter what afflictions we've suffered, no matter what sins we've committed, no matter whether we were good and moral or whether we were wicked and loving it, Jesus has come for us. Father, we pray that we might celebrate and rejoice in knowing Jesus every day of this year and every day of the next and until Jesus comes back for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.